I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. My guest today grew up in Wisconsin and had the opportunity to play for two Hall of Fame football coaches, Ara Parsegian at Notre Dame and Chuck Noll with the Pittsburgh Steelers. In addition, he volunteered during the Vietnam War to represent our country abroad. Uh, during his time abroad, he was injured and through sheer, sheer grit, determination and a positive attitude, was able to rebuild his body so that he could be an integral member of the Steelers Super Bowl winning teams. Rocky Blyer is a unique individual, tough, talented, humble, and a tremendous friend. We welcome Rocky Blyer. Welcome, friends. Listen, I've done, this is my 30th. You're my first movie star. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's nice. Put it in that category. Huh? <laughs> movie star. I mean, here you are, grown up in Wisconsin, baby that your dad looks at and says he looks like a rock. That's right. You know, you know, so the story people ask how I got the the nickname, The Rock, and, and obviously. Growing up uh, in the bar business, and I was the firstborn, and like all firstborn, you know, and the guys are coming in from the mill. They're saying, "Hey, Bob, how's that? Uh, how's that new kid of yours?" Well, he said, "Oh, you got to see him. He's got those muscles. He looks like little rocks sitting on the grip." Now they come back a couple days later, and they say, "Hey, Bob, how's that little rock of yours?" He goes, "What do you mean? You know, your kid." <laughs> so I had it, had it ever since. So was sports something from the get-go? The family was into, or was that just? you naturally progressed into it. I think like everybody, you just play, you know, I mean, it, 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 unlike today, and I'm just saying that from an organization point of view, back, <laughs> back in, in the, in the, uh, in the 50s growing up is that um, there wasn't organ, there wasn't organizations, there wasn't little league, there wasn't pop Warner. There, you know, there, there was neighborhoods and you got pickup games and you're playing outside and you're playing hide go seek and you're playing tag and you're playing this kind of stuff. And, and, and so it was basketball was probably a little more organized than football was at that time for that grade level. And so you just played Paul Schreider, my next door neighbor, whose dad also owned a bar right next door and you know competitor you know we'd we'd have pickup game he had a he had a he had, he had a hoop and a backboard nailed against a tree in his driveway and so that's but i think the thing is is that you just like as kids you got interested and uh, then all of a sudden in junior high you know you get some organization and went to catholic grade school so i played in seventh grade and then eighth grade and and then went to high school and didn't know what to expect. A brand new high school, baby boomers, Catholic education, new Catholic high school, brand new coach by the name of Torchy Clark. 
That was in 1960. By 61, we are in the conference. Now they got a whole new big conference uh, established with all the new Catholic schools that had been built. And uh, so for those three years in football and, and basketball, um, we lost four games. We lost four games. Never lost a football game. Uh, we're the state champions uh, in in both in basketball and then the defending state champions. And we lost that game my senior year. But anyway, but but it was it, it he just played, you know, and and it was a part of and some things you could do and you know you you develop as a young as a young athlete. Not that it was the goal. Not that it was like I I wanted to play in the pros or even wanted to play in college. You just played and. You know, and because of the success, like everything else, Judd, like the success of that group, you get recognized for your, you know, your contribution um, to the team. So along the way, you get to become all conference and then I get to become all state. And then, you know, <laughs> I always take pride in the fact that it was a high school All-American parade magazine, high school All-American. And I figured out, you know, they get, uh, uh, I don't know, 50, 51, 50. 51 uh, All-Americans <laughs> in there because every state <laughs> had their own <laughs> high school All-American. Anyway, so that was, uh, uh, and that's, and it's so it just evolved. And football then became um, a, a focus as a, out of coming out of high school and then going into college and got an opportunity to play um, at Notre Dame. So that, I mean, that had to be a unique experience. Catholic education, and you go to the, and you end up going to Notre Dame. I mean, that had to be an unbelievable experience. It was a great experience. Now, you just have to also understand that uh, at that period of time, um, you know, sports, sports, let's just say sports weren't as big as they are today. So you get the, uh, uh, get the, the Notre Dame wrap up on uh, Sunday mornings for like uh, an hour, they would quickly, and that was, that was the best advertisement that Notre Dame ever had. Um, but, you know, so University of Wisconsin was, a, you know, big because we were from Wisconsin. Probably the best piece of advice I received was from uh, the assistant coach recruited the Wisconsin area from Notre Dame. And, and, and I, I know that he had his, his own method and means um, in so saying, but he said, listen, you're going to get a lot of scholarships and every place that you go to visit or offers you're going to get you to visit, they're always going to roll out the red carpet every weekend that you go to this school or that school. They're going to show you the best of the school. And by the time you have to make that decision of where you want to go, um, you're going to, it's going to be confusing. I mean, so how do you know which one? He said, listen, he said, my advice, choose three schools, three schools that you would like to graduate from, not play for, but graduate from, because who knows what might happen during that period of time of injuries or sickness or whatever, that you might not be able to continue to play. So um, I thought that just made eminent sense in, in my world at that time. So University of Wisconsin was one because of my home uh, Notre Dame and Boston College were the three that I had picked. Like every good Catholic boy, I, you know, I went to church and prayed for guidance and direction. And then like every good Catholic boy, I did what my mother wanted me to do. And that's how I ended up at Notre Dame. But what a change. I mean, even so if I look at if I look at playing, but if I look at Notre Dame, 
what a change that had taken place, being at the right place at the right time. So Errol Persinger comes in from Northwestern University. Um, and Errol had established a name uh, at Northwestern. And the biggest thing that helped at that period of time was the NCAA uh, rule change um, in uh, substitution at the change of the ball. In 1963 and prior, uh, as the ball changed, you could only substitute three players. So people had to play both ways. So your fullback was a middle linebacker, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now all of a sudden they changed it um, and you could have uh, platoons. So oh, so now he's got a plethora of talent and he starts moving them around to where he needs them. So he takes Pete Durenko, who is a, out of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, uh, six foot two, 240-pound uh, fullback out of Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And so now all of a sudden, Era moves him to a defensive tackle, uh, and he becomes an All-American defensive tackle, but he's big and he's strong and he's got great quickness. And so he moves all of his people around to fit the needs, and he goes 9-1 and one that year. Uh, and then by my junior year, we win the national championship. Again, being at the right place at the right time and uh, with a great organization, things happen that allow you to, you know, be in. So, what made him a, a unique coach in your mind? I think the biggest thing that Era had was that Era was very organized, allowed his assistant coaches to coach, set up a practice structure uh, of uh, getting the most out of the people in a shorter period of time, such as, you know, so everything was timed. You know, we weren't out there running another play. Okay, we're going to run it again. Okay, run it again, run it again. Everything was was timed, organized, and so on. Probably the uh, best uh, <laughs> best example I had of uh, era, it was when I was a captain-elect for the uh, my senior year. And one of the things he asked me to do was write a letter to welcome people, uh, all the players back for that, that fall. And he said, I want to see it before you, you, you send it out. And I said, okay, fine. So I was on my way to class. I was going to summer school that that year, and I thought, "Oh, I'll stop in at the uh, in in the office and just you know say here it is, you know, take a look at it, coach." And he's standing out outside of his office in in, in the reception area, and he's he's BSing with a couple of his assistant coaches. And I walk in, hey, Brock, how you doing? You know, nice to see you. How's everything going? I said, fine. He said, Coach, I, I do you have a couple seconds? I'd like you to. Um, take a look at this letter you asked me to, to write. And he goes, uh, yeah, make an appointment uh, and ask, uh, ask Ann uh, when, when I have time to be able to meet with you. Huh. And I go, oh, okay, Ann. So I go, I turn, Ann, when can I meet with Coach? She said, well, how about tomorrow at the same time? <laughs> so that was my first thing. Said, okay, fine. You just don't interrupt. You know, things are organized. You make an appointment to have time. He, so he had a he, he had a lot. Of, he had a big impact, really, on his players. Um, just the way he was, the expectations he had, um, and uh, and as I said before, the coaching staff he had to uh, uh, be able to relate to. So then you have an opportunity to get drafted late and uh, to come to a town similar to the one you grew up in that has a lot of bars. <laughs> it sure does. You know, I mean, I, I can remember, uh, I remember my senior year in, at Notre Dame, we were playing Pitt in, uh, in Pittsburgh. And so 
I was there my sophomore year, but I didn't know much. But, but now my senior is a little older. And uh, night before the game, um, as a senior, we, you didn't have to go with the team. The team usually went to a movie or something. You didn't. You could be on your own. So I can remember walking out of the Hilton Hotel, right, right there on the point. Right. At the, at the point, I walk out. I look across. And I see this hillside across and Mount Washington. See an Alcoa sign blinking off and on. So I'm going for a walk and I take a left and I walk down Liberty Avenue looking. Uh, come past, go down a couple blocks, come Penn Avenue, back to the hotel. And in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, only based on, based on nothing except for what you thought or perceived about Pittsburgh at the time, on who in the hell would ever want to live here? <laughs> and three months later, they drafted me, and I've been here ever since. But anyway, that was my that was my uh, that was my first impression of, of Pittsburgh. Uh, and obviously, as you had made mention, it was much like it was much like Appleton. I mean, on the on the rivers, and so in mill towns. Ours was paper. This was steel uh, townships. You know that uh, that I had their own identity that made up the, the greater Pittsburgh area, um, and in uh, Pittsburghese, you know, yins and downtown and a whole new language, <laughs> and you know that. But uh, but what a great fan base it was, and of course being here, um, you know, at that time, and then 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 as things progressed thereafter, and things change, and uh, uh, it was. It's been a wonderful experience. Well, I mean, you come in and then you end up, you know, we've got the Vietnam War going on. Right. You get drafted and you volunteer to go to Vietnam and you end up getting wounded twice in the, on the same, get shot with a bullet, shrap metal, right. can't walk. Uh, and then you've got to come back. You've lost all this weight and now you've got to rebuild yourself. Talk about that mindset, how, how, Devastated, you must have been with the injury. You know, I think this. I think. I think part of it. I mean, part of being the athlete is that it's something that we. It's part of the experience. It's part of the game. Injuries. I'm just talking about injuries because there was no one that's ever escaped an injury growing up or playing in the backyard or playing organized sports. From pulled muscles to sprains to bruises, broken fingers, um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you go see the doctor, um, Is you got to heal, and you go through rehab, and then you're back out and playing again, you know? So all those incidences, you know, become part of a, of a, a learned process. So when I got injured, damaged as I may be, things were intact. I mean, I didn't lose a, a limb. Damaged, but I didn't lose anything. So my thought process is going to just take time, one, to heal, and then secondly, to be able to get a chance. Now, that's the important thing is the that opportunity that, that get a chance. And, um, you know, and I can remember I can remember a couple a couple instances, you know, which gives you a sense of hope down the line. And that was one when I was first injured out of the out of uh, in Da Nang in the field hospital, coming out of the field, and I got an IV, I got a morphine drip. Uh, you know, and then all those questions of why me now, what, where am I going to go? You know, what's, what's my future look like? And across from him was a young soldier. He was a triple amputee. He lost his left arm and both legs. And every day the aides would come to take him to uh, therapy. 
you know, and he grabbed that little trapeze that swung over his bed and squeezed as possible with help to get into his wheelchair and they'd push him out. But he made sure he stopped at every bed and he'd say, my bed. And I can remember this. Planned his day and he said, hey, how are you doing today? You know, I tell you what, you look better today than you did yesterday because yesterday, let me tell you, you looked like shit. There's <laughs> here, we're gonna take care of you and we'll get you out of here and I'll see you back in the real world one of these days. And it was one of those things you go, wow. I mean, anybody could be embittered with his lot in life would be that young soldier having to live with those atrocities that had taken place thousands of miles away. But yet he chose, he chose, I mean, to have a positive attitude. And so I think the important thing was having that kind of an attitude. I mean, if he could have an attitude, what about me? I'm going to walk someday was my mindset. And so then they, then, then some weeks later, I was in Tokyo. And I finally got enough courage to ask my physician, what do you think? Okay, about my damage. Can I come back and play? His response was, don't worry about it. You'll have a normal life. Don't expect to get back on the playing field. You just won't have the strength or flexibility. And, you know, as an authority figure, and this is the important thing, because the impact that people have on one another becomes so important. As an authority figure, he just sucked that hole, you know, right out. And two days later, I get a postcard in the mail. Yep. Postcard. Got two lines on it said, Rock, team's not doing well. We need you. Art Rooney, owner of the Steelers. Wow, somebody needs you. The chief, you know, so somebody, well, they didn't need me, but he, he gave you that little sense of hope. And I can remember getting out of the service, writing him and saying, hey, you think I could become, would you invite me to, can I can go back to training camp in 1970? And he said, uh, I think I think so. I'll check with Dan, and we'll get back to you. And Dan invited me back to training camp. So training camp beat me up that year. I mean, just it just beat me up. Um, so I hobbled through it as best I possibly can. Whatever they saw, whatever they saw, but being the family, they put me on injured reserve. Um, I had another operation. I had shrapnel working its way out, still out of uh, out of the wounds. And so um, we, as Dan, I can remember going, Dan said, I um, we'll put you on injury reserve. I want our doctors to take a look at you. I think, you know, you could possibly, you know, help us later on in the season. Blah, blah, blah. So they bought me a year, came back the following year, and um, I made the developmental squad or the taxi squad. Uh, I can remember um, right before I came to camp, I pulled a little hamstring, you know, as we're doing, working out. And then in camp, you know, I, I, I did the same thing. Uh, I now pulled it. And so took a couple of weeks for it to heal, to come back and played a couple of exhibition games. And they put me on, on, on the, on the taxi squad. They bought me two years. I mean, so I was on a taxi squad. Um, I suited up for the last three games because somebody else got hurt just to be there. But as I tell people, they bought me an opportunity to heal, an opportunity to get bigger, stronger, faster, an opportunity to come back. And so by 1972, things start to change. I come back and I make the team, playing special teams primarily. Um, it was a foot in the door. And um, and uh, all of a sudden, 72, as we well know, becomes a magical season in Steeler history. Uh, we get to the playoffs for the first time in those 40 years. And um, and, and the immaculate reception takes place where we beat the, uh, the Raiders to go to the championship. The um, Chuck Knoll factor. 
talk about his influence and then the people that you had around you because the individuals were not just great athletes. When you think about what they did when they got on with life's work, as Chuck used to say, yeah. all, all of you turned out to have these tremendous careers outside of football. I think part of the successful careers came from the success of what had taken place on the field and, and, and playing with, with Chuck. So, of course, Chuck comes in in 1969 as a uh, young assistant coach with the Baltimore Colts. They had just gone to the Super Bowl. He'd been in the coaching league for about five years at that time and, um, and uh, got that opportunity to come here to be our head coach. You know, what Chuck really brought was a sense of, of style. What he brought was a sense of organization. What he brought was a sense of, uh, um, of, unlike any other coach the Steelers had over those last 40 years, which were all friends of the Chiefs, uh, not necessarily great coaches, but friends of the Chiefs. So uh, Chuck comes in, Dan is now the president of the club, and he sets a whole new tenor of, of what the future should be like. Those who have known him or got to know him, you know, was a student of the game. He was a professor. He uh, didn't think that the, that I think one of the things is that it was put in, in right perspective of the importance in one's life. You know, there's other parts of your life as well. It becomes in, it's not all just football during the football season. Um, and his expectations um, were, were great. I mean, he, he expected, I, I, Andy Russell played linebacker for us. Uh, Andy was then cap, or was captain of the team, uh, an all-pro linebacker uh, on a team that that only won two games the year before. Uh, and so Chuck came in and sat down to him, and, and he said to Andy, he said, uh, and Andy was thinking, you know, that uh, Chuck was going to pat him on the back and praise him, his leadership ability and his ability to play the game and how important he is for this. And he said, "Listen, I I've watched films. I'm going to make you a better." Um, linebacker. You might not be the star, but you're going to be a better linebacker. Um, now you're taking chances, you're anticipating, you're reading. He said, I want you to be able to do your job and let other people do their own job rather than trying to cover for them. Uh, and so in so doing, uh, we'll be a better team, but you might not make pro. And so that was Chuck knowing, okay, here, everybody had an assignment. You do your assignment. Don't worry about everybody else. If you do your assignment, um, then, you know, we'll come together as a, as a whole and as a team and, and melt. Well, part of that was getting the right players. And so then he starts uh, establishing players with uh, work ethics, players that had talent, players that um, uh, could lead. Uh, and so he, you know, he started to build a team. Joe Green obviously was that uh, that first choice uh, in 1969. Then uh, Bradshaw and Mel Blunt came along. We got Jack Ham in '71, and then Franco Harris in '72, uh, and that great class of '74. Lynn Swan, John Stoworth, and Mike Webster, and Jack Lambert, and Donnie Shell all came together five people who are now in the Hall of Fame. And so um, that talent is, you know, started to, to develop by 74. We get to the playoffs that first year. Um, and then through those next uh, six years, we become in a, of a, a pretty veteran team uh, with uh, some great talent. Uh, 
and and and, and we've built on. And so if you look at if you look at what those players have done, the contribution, and you know, it it a lot of it was it was Chuck, you know, and his ability of of getting it across to him that you're more than just a football player. You have a responsibility to not only this team, but your community, you know, and uh, and your family. And the expectations he had uh, of that talent that, um, that, that he possessed uh, to take it another step further. But Chuck was a unique person, uh, as we well know in that regard. So I asked Terry Hanready one time, how would you describe you know, Chuck, I mean, because we all went through that experience with Chuck. And he goes, you know, Chuck was not a yeller or a screamer, a player's coach. I mean, he was very, diff- you know, he, he, he wasn't uh, patting you on the back all the time or, you know, giving you hugs. He said, you know, he's a very even-tempered kind of a guy, but he just made you feel a little uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was that little uncomfortableness, you know, that uh, attuned us to the responsibilities that we had, not only in the field, but then. I think the other piece that having worked with Chuck uh, for five years was the focus on the team. If the team was successful, you would receive your awards. The success would go around. But if he wasn't about focusing on one individual is always about the team. It's always about your performance. And if you're successful, everybody will benefit from it. Very much so. You're right. And so even, you know, <laughs> and in his, in his post-game conferences, he never threw anybody under the bus. He never picked on them. He never said it was one person's fault. You know, you talk about the defense and or the offense, what needed to be changed or what happened during that game wasn't any one individual. And as much as the media would try to pinpoint him uh, to say something of that nature, because you're right, what he's, it was all about was all about the team and your responsibility within that team. Um, and if you did your job, if you did your job, then everybody else will take care of themselves. Right. Don't, try to, don't try to cover for everybody else and try to make up. And you're right, is that because of that, you know, everybody got to be part of the success. You know, it, it was a team effort. And because of that, everybody's stature rose, you know, to uh, the level of playing on Super Bowl teams. And, uh, whether You know, <laughs> here's an interesting thing, and I, I just thought about this, which is contribution to a game, okay? Thinking about Super Bowl thirteen. And what did one do in that game? You know, I mean, so you go back, I mean, it's been some years and, you know, things get confused. What kind of a game did, did I really have in that game? I mean, what did you do? And so I found the, st- the stats. And in that game, I carried the ball twice for two yards. <laughs> I caught one pass and, and, and I recovered one onside kick. That was my contribution. But because of the success, I make the cover of Sports Illustrated, <laughs> and people and people identify that Super Bowl with the catch in the end zone for a touchdown. My role was one play basically, but um, we wouldn't have gotten there. Obviously, that if we, you go back and you say, "Well, how important really were you in that game?" and you go, oh, "Not that important," you know. 
Well, the other thing is here you are playing a, a halfback position and blocking for Franco. I mean, talk about being unselfish. I mean, the way you were utilized in their offense, uh, the way you ran the ball with all the traps and all the and all the kinds of plays that Chuck liked to run, pull right. linemen since he was a guard, he kind of liked the lineman moving. Yeah, you ended up with a lot of responsibility of blocking people. Well, that, yeah, so within that system, so within our offensive system, you know, people say, "Well, we want you to halfback." Yeah, I'm late today. You know, <laughs> where you have one back or an eye back, you know, running out of that backfield. You know, Chuck had the, 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 it was a fullback oriented thinking, you know, that was your main runner. Your halfback was kind of like the blocking back uh, uh, within that scheme. You got a chance to run the ball at times. And so that was, that was fine. You were a part of it. But the whole focus was around having that one, um, that one running back in our case was frankly did a wonderful job. Part of it is I'm just happy. I mean, honestly, God, just to be a part, part of this team and whatever skill set I can bring for the success, you know, is that I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to compete with Franco. I was happy to be in the same backfield uh, because whatever he got recognized for, I just came along holding his coattails. And, um, uh, and so then it became a, a part of, and the only reason I got a chance to play, as I understand it, was um, back 1974, you got off to a shaky start. Uh, in the beginning, with the three one-and-one Bradshaws on the bench, Franco's banged up, and Frenchie's starting, Preston Pearson is the, is the halfback. Things are just kind of – and so Franco gets comes back, and Chuck uh, said to Dick Hulk, who was our backfield coach at the time, said, I, he said, I think we have a weakness in the backfield. Who is your best blocker? And he said, Blyer. He said, well, then start him. And so that became the role that I had on the team. And I was just happy to have that role. Well, you know, the, the point you mentioned about Chuck and each person individually focused towards the end, when I was with him, after we started losing, when he talked to the team, he never blamed the person. He always asked each individual to focus on what they could do to get better. And then right. each of us individually focused on how we could get better. It would help the team be successful. So his approach, whether you were winning or losing, was always the same. Focus on what you can control, and that's you. Nobody yeah. around you. Don't be pointing the finger at anybody. So he never lost the locker room. The incredible piece about him was because of that approach, you know, coaches today lose the team, lose the locker room. He never did. His great right. jobs is when we weren't winning, and he was able to keep the team competitive. Right. You know, and I also think, and I also think that, you know, Chuck was, you know, as I look back, Chuck was also a, a smart enough at the time to understand that locker room leadership was important by peer pressure, not by coaches coming in and yelling and screaming, but right. internally, his expectations. And, you know, we had a couple, everybody was, but we had a couple vociferous leaders on the team, Jack Lambert being one, and Joe Green because of his position um, and his recognition uh, and his esteem by the other players as this, as this solid rock defensive tackle that, you know, and how we play this game, you know, and I can remember him talking to Joe and, having, and, and trying to get Joe to become a little more involved, you know, with the, with the, with the team. Lambert, it was easy. 
<laughs> for him to get involved. Um, but I think that was a very important because you looked up to both of them because they 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 both had an, an impact on the defense of what they did and their stature uh, of playing. And it wasn't all about them. It was about the team and, and the expectations um, that they had of other individuals on that team. And so I think that became very important where part of what, you know, Chuck's strength was as well as disseminating that leadership, especially um, on the team. The, the other piece, Rocky, is that since you've retired, I mean, you've had some really successful careers. I mean, you've kind of been adaptable and you're in finances. Talk about what that career transition is like for somebody that was in the it was playing and then all of a sudden you had to get out of that and you right. had a transition. And back then you weren't making the kind of money that you, that the players are today. So you had to have a job in the off season just to support yourself. So, I mean, how did, how did sure, you know, and, and you're right. And so, you know, part of it was getting ready for, um, you know, your, as Chuck would say, your life's work. What are you going to do? You, all you're here is for a period of time. And no matter how how long it might be for three, four, five, ten years or or longer, but that's all you have here. What are you going to do thereafter? The transitions are tough in all of our lives, no matter what we do. And how do you make that transition? Well, I think one of the biggest things in making that transition is finding out <laughs> what you're good at, maybe what you're not good at, what you'd like to do, and so on. Because all our focus has ever been is in football. And getting to the point where where you were now playing on a professional level, and then what's going to happen thereafter. Um, and so, uh, for me specifically, I remember it was Super Bowl fourteen. We're getting ready, uh, and it, it was the week of, of of the game. And like everything else, the, all the sports writers have to write a story. So the question came up to me during that week. I said, "Hey, do you ever think about retiring?" not until you mentioned it. <laughs> and why? Well, you know, uh, they always say you should go out on top. What's a better way to go out on top? You know, you've been around for 10, 11 years. Uh, you didn't start at the beginning of the season. we got some young running backs coming up. Just have you thought about so, No, I haven't, but thank you for that thought. Anyway, but then, but you get to thinking, you know, about, oh, maybe I should retire. Who, who knows? Um, you'd like to go out on top. You'd like to go out on your um, when you want to do it, rather than being cut or having an injury that uh, that, uh, that takes you out of the game. So, um, and so I, I decided to play one. I decided to play one more year, and that was the '80s season. The movie was coming out in the following season after the Super Bowl, and, and my producer said, well, "You got to play. You got to play because then we'll get some free publicity." I go, okay, fine. Uh, but I go in and tell Dan Rooney, I go in and tell Dan Rooney, I said, Dan, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, if, if I go and tell Chuck, I think this is going to be my last season. He's, he, I, I was afraid that he might say, why don't we just make it now? Why don't you just retire now? If you're thinking about retiring, then you've already retired. So, you know, I'll get somebody else to do it. But making that transition, part of, uh, you know, what I did thereafter, and I got an opportunity just because of the success of the team, uh, to go in sports broadcasting. I'd been in the finance business before that um, and uh, in, the, in, the, in the bond business, uh, and we were doing that. We had some other issues that, that had taken place there, and I thought, oh, okay, fine. 
you know, it, it had made for me the transition easy. One, you didn't drop off the end of the end of the earth. Uh, you finish your career. I'm back on television, so it fed my ego, what ego I had, um, and I'm still attached to the Steelers. And I do in training camp, and I'm doing uh, the sports on television, and I'm doing the um, preseason uh, games as a color analyst. And as I said before, a lot of times your experiences are finding out what you cannot do. <laughs> and I found out quickly what I cannot do in the broadcasting world. Then I got into the speaking business uh, thereafter because of the success that we had as Steelers because of what they did. And because of my story, well, then I became kind of like the little darling of, you know, all the uh, junior high and high school banquets. And so then um, eventually I got in the construction business in which I am now. And so, uh, but it's, you know, it's all those things that you learn along the way and try to adapt and, and bring to your own organization, um, you know, some leadership abilities and, uh, and get the right people <laughs> in the right places and let them do the work that they're supposed to do. You know, we've known each other for 36 years. Back to when I, 84. Right. I mean, playing golf, families together. I mean, it, it's been a lot of fun. So I really appreciate you taking time to join us. I mean, you're, as I look at individuals I've been associated with, I mean, you're an inspirational individual in terms of what you've achieved, how you went about doing it, and you've stayed humble. You know, a tribute, I guess, to your mom and dad and the way they raised you and uh, growing up in that uh, environment in Wisconsin. So you've been a, a true friend and a pleasure to have been a part of your story and uh, to know you as a friend. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Jed. Thank you. It really is. And uh, good luck with the rest of the podcast that I'm sure that you're going to have. And, uh, and thanks for having me on your show. Uh, my pleasure. Happy New Year.